0: You're standing in front of me and you don't see that there's this giant monster that's standing behind you that I'm reacting to. And I'm not reacting necessarily to you. I'm reacting to this like this monstrosity behind you that's terrifying and is like kicking up all of these like primal reactions that are saying you need to protect yourself.
1: That was Kelly explaining how her borderline personality disorder makes her react more strongly to a confrontation than you or I might. Kelly and I met at an HR conference earlier this year. I was part of a panel about diversity and inclusion at work, and I used it as an opportunity to tell my story and the story of silent superheroes. Kelly was in the audience. She approached me after the panel to say thank you for sharing my story and started to share hers. I was excited to talk to somebody about borderline personality disorder, and so I asked if she would record an episode, and we did so later that day. I think that's the power of standing up and speaking your truth. It inspires others to do the same. And one by one, we feel less like an outsider and more of a community. Borderline personality disorder, or BPD, as it's more commonly known, is one of the less common and less well-known mental illnesses. It occurs in about 1% of the population and it can distort the way you think about yourself and others and it can make maintaining relationships more difficult. In this episode of Silent Superheroes, Kelly will share some of her personal experiences with BPD, the tools that she uses to manage it, and some of the ways it's affected her career. Most important, we'll learn that BPD is manageable and it's compatible with forging a successful career. Remember, Kelly and I are two people talking about our personal experiences living with and managing a mental illness. If you have any concerns about your mental health, reach out to a mental health care provider or there are some numbers you can use at the end of this episode. If you're in treatment and something you hear inspires you to make a change to your treatment program, please consult with your care provider before you do. My name is James Pratt. I'm the host of Silent Superheroes, and I'm really glad that you're here. Welcome to the Silent Superheroes podcast, a series of frank conversations about mental health at work. Okay, welcome to Silent Superheroes. I'm here with today's guest, Kelly. Hi. Welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So Kelly, why don't you introduce yourself, let us know a little bit about uh, who you are and what you do.
0: My name is Kelly Wagner. I am the founder and CEO of a diversity and inclusion consultancy and research lab called Collective. I started this company with a mission to create healthy inclusive workplaces where people could be themselves um, and not fear retribution, one, but also have what makes them unique be an integral part to how they contribute to the the company and the culture.
1: How did you come to found that company?
0: I initially thought that I wanted to do journalism and it really came from wanting to surface um, stories that weren't being told, stories that Like my own um, stories that I was seeing tangentially through um, my life experiences while pursuing that um, in grad school, fell into the corporate world. Um, I'm a woman of color. I do deal with mental illness and have tons of other areas of my identity that I really wasn't seeing represented or valued and embraced um, in many of the workplaces that I was, you know, residing in. And so it kind of got to a point where I felt like, how can I not, you know, I can continue to job hop. I can continue to kind of lament what our workplaces are like and what they're not doing. Or I could be a part of that solution and, and try to solve not just my problem, but a problem that's impacting so many people.
1: If somebody wanted to go find out about your company, where should they go?
0: You can visit us at hello-collective.com. And we're also on, on all the social media channels. All with the, the same, social media
1: channels, right? Same <laughs> handle. <laughs> so you mentioned mental illness. And so why don't you talk to us about uh, the mental illness that you manage?
0: So, my journey with mental illness started pretty early. I have been in therapy since I was 10 years old, and I actually have vivid memories of being bribed to go to therapy with trips to Dairy Queen. <laughs> um but uh, so so my mother passed away when I was really young. And so that was, you know, I think a piece of managing that, you know, there was a lot of trauma there. And I wasn't always a willing participant in, in addressing that trauma and, you know, even acknowledging that it existed. And so I think that really bubbled up for me in a pretty severe way in high school. When I think back, like I could probably think, think back to being around 12 and starting to feel kind of like what I now know was depression and getting signals that like that's not appropriate. Like if you're going to cry, go to your room. Like why are you crying? What's wrong with you? And so I really did shut that part of myself down for many years until about 16 or 17. um, I kind of had my first breakdown, if you will, and kind of just shut down and stopped talking for like a week and laid in bed. And my family was obviously extremely concerned and took me to the hospital. And that kind of set off a I don't know, like four or five-year journey of me really cycling in and out of mental health facilities, dealing with depression, self-harm, anorexia, pretty severe at at one point, and um, ultimately being diagnosed at the age of 18 with uh, borderline personality disorder.
1: So not many people know what borderline personality disorder is. Would you be able to explain it for us?
0: I love that I get to talk about this because I think that there are a lot of really negative um, misconceptions and harmful misconceptions around borderline personality disorder. But it is a personality disorder basically to qualify, you know, it's characterized by impulsive behavior, mood instability. There are certain things that often are traits. So things like self-harm, anorexia, a lot of thoughts of suicide goes along with this. So there's also a strong tie to like fear of abandonment. And, and rejection and loss um, that can kind of send someone spiraling into a place where, you know, their symptoms would flare up, which again are characterized by kind of like extreme acts of self-harm or destructive behaviors. Another thing about that you'll hear like about people with BPD and, you know, I think there's some truth in it is we can develop like bonds really quickly. So, you know, a lot of people will that have borderline personality disorder, you would probably describe as very charming and sociable, which can be confusing to the person on the other end because it's like, oh, we just met and within a week we're like best friends and I like we're so close and I love you and you can do no wrong. And then the person gives you feedback and all of a sudden you're like, you're the devil. Um, and they're like, wait, what? <laughs> what just happened? Um, which is like very confusing.
1: So for you, you know, if you think back to a you know week or some days where that was very active for you, talk us through like the, what, that, what that specific experience was.
0: I think definitely the symptoms that led to me being diagnosed with it was a pattern of self-harm. So I started cutting myself when i was about 17 unfortunately a habit that i picked up in the hospital from other patients really was a way of kind of self-medication of i have these extreme emotions and i can't articulate i can't articulate why i'm feeling them and what they mean and i want them to stop or be distracted from them and so cutting was kind of a way for me to find some sort of kind of emotional release, like an emotional valve. But then I think as an adult where I really saw it emerge as like kind of a pattern that I had to ultimately address was in romantic relationships. Anytime that I would feel like someone was pushing me away or I was going to lose someone, it would make me cling harder and I would get panicky. Like I would feel like the world is ending You know, I'm not good enough. I'm being abandoned. No one will ever love me. And these were things that my brain was telling me very strongly. And for someone with borderline personality disorder, the need to make that pain go away or stop that discomfort becomes overwhelming and unmanageable. And the feeling is, I need to do whatever it takes to make that feeling stop, whether it is harming myself, whether it is harming the other person, embarrassing and shameful to talk about. But I think that it's really important. You know, I went through a relationship shortly after college where, you know, we would get in these fights and I would text, like, I couldn't stop myself texting him. And I would wake up the next morning and like, I sent like a hundred texts and I would just be like, what's wrong with me? And I think it was so especially challenging because in every other aspect of my life, I was very high functioning, like you would never know, right? So there's this deep shame because you're like, I'm doing these things that someone would look at and be like, that is crazy. And it felt so misaligned with who I was 95% of the time.
1: And I'm hearing that thing that comes up so often when I have these conversations, which is there's some behavior that you know is not normal. And I just keep thinking that if someone's having that experience where you wonder, is that normal? Do other people do that? That's the time to go talk to somebody. Because worst case, someone's like, no, that's that's normal. That seems okay.
0: I think there, that borderline personality disorder is very unique in that There isn't a ton or there hasn't traditionally been a ton of solid research done on it. And there for a very long time, there was this sentiment in the mental health community from professionals that it was kind of like this uncurable thing that was like the patient was destined to drive everyone away and like felt very much like this is like the diagnosis that you do not want put on you. And my aunt, who was my primary caretaker in high school, not out of maliciousness or a lack of wanting to get me help, was really, really like pushed to not have that diagnosis. And then when I did have that diagnosis given to me by doctors, it was like, don't talk about that. Don't share about that because you don't want it to lead to people being biased against you I think the whole point of this podcast right it like if you if there's a shame like you don't get the help that you need for a long time it was much easier for me to say well I suffer from depression but I don't want to talk about the other stuff
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, because you know people kind of get depression not really but kind of do you know what I mean
0: I think there are mental health disorders, you know, mental illnesses that people feel a little bit less uncomfortable about, right? Like and we know like so many people one in 5 or something, but I'm sure it's much higher report, you know, having gone through a depressive episode at least once in their life. And so it feels a little bit like like we all know someone who has had depression or we think we know what depression looks like. And the same with I always say anorexia, right, is like the acceptable disease until it gets too bad because it's like, oh, yeah, like, yes, as a society, we value thinness. BPD is not one of those diseases. It definitely makes people uncomfortable. um, And I think it is because it feels a little bit more volatile and unpredictable. And that can be scary for people.
1: And it can be
0: frightening. It's confusing enough for the person who is going through it. It's understandable why people would feel Frightened, but I think that a big part of breaking that down is really helping people to understand what it is, what it isn't. Oftentimes, it's actually very internal.
1: You talked about the behavior of, you know, if a relationship is falling apart, that kind of gripping on and wanting to kind of make it work. What other ways to, has BPD shown up for you?
0: My therapist is lovely and wonderful at trying to help me normalize certain things. So, and you kind of said, you know, when you're asking, is this normal? she sometimes will have to be like, Well, that's not BPD. That's just your personality, right? <laughs> like <laughs> that's normal. Like that's a you know. Um and so sometimes there is a sense of like, is this normal? But there's a lot of black and white thinking. So this pendulum swing of all or nothing or I love this person today, I hate this person. I think the tomorrow and I think that there's a um there's a book out there or something called like I Hate You, Please Don't Leave Me,
1: (laughs) which I love about
0: BPD. And it's such a great title. There have always been kind of levels for me in different types of relationships in my life and how BPD has shown up. And so romantic relationships for me is kind of like this last frontier of like it was always the most severe, like triggering relationship. I think when things were a little bit more like BPD was more actively showing up in my life. It did kind of touch on like friendships and family. Of like when I would be disappointed, it would be hard for me to be grounded in, okay, like somebody, this person did something that disappointed me and I need to work through that. Like that would be like kind of the rational way of thinking. And my mind would go to like, this person disappointed me. They hate me. They don't care about me. I hate them. I never want to talk to them again. (laughs) So sad because it kind of cut off some really important relationships. And thankfully, as I, you know, have gotten my illness under control and have just also gotten older and probably a little bit more mature because a lot of the qualities of like someone with BPD are also just qualities that come out in teenagers. (laughs) Um... I've had an opportunity to kind of repair some of those relationships, and I'm so grateful for that. You know, we talked about managing bipolar earlier, and like, you know, contrary to what some people may think, you're not always in in crisis. But I still, and it's less often, but probably a couple times a year, will go into like sort of crisis mode, right, where the depression is hitting me really hard, or I do something that is a very BPD behavior. And I have this immediate sense of regret and shame, and like, I'm never going to get better. And which, of course, then only adds to the depression because it's like, I don't want to live like this forever. Like, if I can't get better, like, this is no way to live. And I think one of the really helpful things that my therapist has done is to remind me of the ways that I now show up in areas outside of romantic relationships, that maybe would have triggered me in the past that no longer trigger me. But there have been times in the past where a manager would give me feedback and I would be like, it would just send me for just a a loop, right? Um, and I'd be like, I know I shouldn't be having such a dramatic or internal reaction to this right now, but it is like bringing up some stuff. But I think that that has been very validating and reassuring to me that like you can manage mental illness with work and it's easy like when you have those flare-ups to think like I'm not any better than I was 10 years ago and like I'm gonna suffer forever and so being able to look back and think about like all of the areas that you have made progress has been really really helpful.
1: So that's Kelly, the CEO of Diversity and Inclusion Consultancy Collective, living with and managing BPD. One of the fears people have with talking about their mental health is stigma. What will people think of me? Will they treat me the same? Will they judge me? Kelly was raised in a family who were very comfortable talking about their mental health or going to see a therapist. It was totally okay to talk about that stuff within the family, but outside, not a chance. Kelly was actively discouraged from talking about her mental health at school and later at work. Kelly's family's attitude is far from unusual, and we shouldn't judge it. Most people prefer to not talk about their mental health for that fear of being treated differently, or fear even that people will be afraid of them. For someone who has a less common mental illness like BPD, that risk increases because it's an unknown. For example, if you look up borderline personality disorder on the National Institute for Mental Health, it says, People with borderline personality disorder also tend to view things in extremes such as all good or all bad. Their opinions of other people can also change quickly. An individual who is seen as a friend one day might be considered an enemy or a traitor the next. These shifting feelings can lead to intense and unstable relationships. That paints a pretty dramatic picture. Is it hard on people who are close to somebody with BPD? Definitely. The BPD Family website, an online support group for families with a BPD member, asks, do you know Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? As in the character from Robert Louis Stevenson's novel. So I think it's reasonable to ask, is somebody with BPD destined to a lifetime of dysfunctional, scorched earth relationships? Let's get back to Kelly to understand more about how BPD can be managed. So you've brought up the topic of of treatment and management. Walk us through that journey. Like, how have you learned... To live with and manage your BPD?
0: So there was a therapy created probably 20, 30 years ago, maybe even longer now, called dialectic behavioral therapy. And that has been very life-changing for me. So a lot of when we think of talk therapy, what we think of is um, CBT, so cognitive behavioral therapy, um, where you're like really like looking for the root of things and kind of talking talking out like, oh, this happened to me and this is how I reacted. And I did a ton of that therapy. Like my family put me in therapy. They were very proactive, <laughs> never a shortage of professionals to talk to. And I would get so frustrated with therapy and with myself because I was very self-aware. Like I've always been very self-aware. And I would be like, well, I know that the reason that I have this in like tense um, reaction to Any sort of abandonment is because my mother died when I was seven. I wasn't living with my father and he wasn't really in my life in a permanent way. And so I spent many years of my childhood being kind of like passed from one family member to the other. So, yes, like I have a history of loss. It makes sense that I would feel these strong feelings of abandonment. Great, but I still keep doing the same thing. <laughs> it's not helping me change the the actual behavior that is then causing so much chaos and destruction in my life. And so I was like, "Yeah, like great. I know the root, but what do I do about it?" And that was very frustrating. And that's kind of what DBT is more about: is like, how do we give you the skills um, and like the toolkit to manage those intense feelings? So that you can walk away from it without causing kind of like permanent damage and like severing relationships and losing jobs. And so for me, that has been insanely helpful. And, you know, a lot of that just for people who aren't familiar with DBT really is grounded in mindfulness. So being able to slow your brain down and come back to like your breath and like, because a lot of things with BPD that make it so destructive for people is your brain is moving so fast and your emotions are so wound up. There's often, it can be a struggle to bring yourself back down to like a place where you're not in crisis and can make better choices. Um, and that's really like a big piece for DBT.
1: Think back, what was the first tool on that journey? Like what was the first thing that, that you learned with that?
0: So they definitely start with mindfulness, but I think one of the things that has been helpful is there's this idea of kind of wise mind, right? And so you have um, on one end of the spectrum, your emotion mind, and that's part of your mind that like you're angry and like the intense emotions that come up or or sad, or it can be anything. And then there's the rational mind that's like, very logical and like, this isn't good. Like I should handle it this way. The kind of natural state when you're in crisis for BPD is to go into emotion mind. And that can be really dangerous because you're kind of operating. It's very primal. And I love recently, like I've been talking a lot more to people about that BPD is, we call it a personality disorder, but what it really is when you start to look at like the root of it, it's a trauma reaction. It's like reacting to a threat that's no longer a threat. Something in your brain at a very primal level is telling you like you're experiencing this threat that's associated with this trauma. It's kind of
1: pattern matching like, oh, we've been here before and even though here is totally different, it's like, oh.
0: It can't kind of… Understand that like the threat level is not the actual threat level that it's bringing up for you when you are triggered. The natural reaction, like when you're trying to like self-manage BPD, and this is what I did for a very long time, is to just swing the other way and be in logic mind all the time and really shut down your emotions completely because it's safer. I would go through periods of time and I'm like, I think I'm really better now because I wouldn't have any kind of f- flare-ups. And when I would look at the situation, I'd be like, "Oh, it's cuz I'm not getting close to anyone. I'm keeping people keeping at, a at a distance. Yeah. I'm like not having any vulnerable relationships because I don't want to risk it." That's lonely. Like that's sad. And when you shut down the bad feelings, you also shut down the good feelings. So like you don't get to be selectively numb. You, you know, you lose the joy, you lose the happiness that goes right out the window with like the anger and the sadness. And so wise mind really is about bringing it back to the center in a place that, you know, feels safe.
1: What was your last kind of flare up? When did that last happen for you?
0: So I actually went through a breakup over the summer. I have to be very careful about alcohol. I don't drink often. Um, I'm like a fairly social drinker and um, I'll have a drink or two and it's fine. But alcohol lowers your inhibition. So if you are prone to being impulsive, then all of a sudden, if you're triggered and you're in a state where your inhibitions are even lower, it can make it harder to access that toolkit in the moment and easier to engage in like really impulsive behaviors. And so... This is kind of an asshole move on his part, but this guy and I were dating um for a month a uh, month or two or something. It was, was still pretty new, but i I liked him, and he ended up breaking things off. We were supposed to meet up, and he basically broke things up over text message at one in the morning and That's I a had been classic
1: classy move very yeah. classy
0: move. I had been drinking I was like pretty upset, and I went immediately into like no one will ever love me. So that's like these extremes, right? Is like, instead of being like, wow, what a dick move. I'm disappointed that this relationship didn't work out because I thought things were going well. I went down the path of I'm never going to find anyone. I'm going to be alone forever. No one ever loves me. Everyone leaves, right? And all of a sudden, yes, like if that's the messaging that your brain is sending to you, Yeah, then it does feel natural to go down this like depressive hole and like start to feel suicidal. And thankfully, I have systems in place now. (laughs) That sounds so clinical, but like I have a support (laughs) network in place now that I, you know, I can call a friend. I can text a friend. And I have amazing friends who ask the question, you know, when you're in that space, how can – I best support you. Like, what do you need in that moment? Right? Such a good question. Which is such a good question for allies or like people who have loved ones that are struggling with mental illness. Because I think there's a lot of like, oh, we're going to, you're not in a place to know what's best for you. So we're going to tell you. And I think like people know what's helpful. And so for me, one of the things that I tell my friends is it's not helpful for you to tell me like, it's going to be okay because in that moment for me it doesn't feel like it's going to be okay and now i feel unheard and i don't feel validated and that was something that like somebody saying it's going to be okay is is like fairly innocuous like they're saying that because they want you to have hope but it it's having the opposite effect and so
1: It's almost automatic that you would say that.
0: Yeah, yeah, it'll get better. Like no one wants to hear that when they're in crisis.
1: How long did it take you to to start being able to apply the the tool sack.
0: I always say, like, if I can get myself out of the danger zone, I can use my tools. I wasn't in the danger zone long, called my friends, like, or a friend, you know, it was like, I'm, I want to die, you know, very much of like the hysterics, <laughs> um, which every friend wants to get that call at like two in the morning. Like, but luckily my friends are understanding they know. And then it's kind of like, And this is another thing that I had my friend do is like, remind me of the things that I can do, right? And so for me, it's so silly. I actually like hate baths, but yeah, I don't know. I'm like, (laughs) I'm just sitting in dirt. Like, I don't know. Um, But it actually is one of the things that calms me down the most when I am in a heightened state of emotion. For whatever reason, that's like one of the tools that I can access most automatically when I'm drunk is like I will go and get in a bath and sometimes I'll like go and get in the bath.
1: You're like okay come home like get in the bath.
0: Oh yeah what's funny is like there's still like an obstinance to it because I'll be like I'm getting in the bath to drown myself. (laughs) It's like no you're not like as soon as I'm in the water I'm like okay bring it down like getting to back to like a calm place and I'm super grateful for those tools. I think then the challenge comes, which is like harder part. Maybe is that those episodes are often followed by like a deep period of depression due to shame. Right? Like, man, like I'm still sick. Like, there's still something wrong with me. I thought I, I'd
1: gotten on top of this thing. I knew how to handle it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I thought I had this down. I'm kind of like realizing in this actual moment in real time is like part of accepting your illness and and also like a big part of managing it is not putting the expectation on yourself that you're never going to have a flare up or that you're never going to slip up or that there's something weak about you having a flare up it's like any other physical illness you may have a flare up but it's about how do you then rebound from that and get back on track in a way that feels healthy for you. My probably wish to myself is to change that narrative of shame that comes after because it's me punishing myself for something that I I can't necessarily help.
1: That feels like the next part of your journey. Let's talk about work. And you mentioned before that, for example, in the past, you have had uh, manager feedback that you know, you've reacted to. So what role has BPD played in your work life?
0: My mind automatically goes to rejection. Things that another person would hear um, or someone would say or do to them that might spark little to no reaction or you wouldn't think too much into it, to me can often, it's very easy for my mind to want to go to like They think I'm bad. They think I'm not good enough. Um, And so feedback can be really hard. And it's been helpful to, and this is something that I, you know, we practice on our team at my company, but I really coach some of our clients around is like asking people how they receive feedback best. And are you in a space to receive feedback? And like, do you prefer it written? Do you prefer this? And for me, like getting written feedback is actually super helpful. Because it gives me a chance to process. If I have to process my emotions in the moment, which is like the typical feedback of like, you're telling me this, I don't get a chance to compose myself. I don't get a chance to process it to say, because what will probably always happen for the rest of my life, and I've definitely learned to manage it much better, is that when I will process new information, I will have a gut impulse reaction that could be extreme to someone else. And then, my, and then I have to kind of, like, bring it back to a wise mind place and look at it for what it is instead of putting judgment on it or interpreting it through this lens that I interpret it through where it becomes catastrophized. Um, and so, you know, I have had moments in my work history where, like, it's like someone gave me feedback and it's like, I need to quit. <laughs> um, And I left, you know, and I I did. I left a lot of jobs out of a, a sense of just conflict, right? Like I blew up something in my mind that was so small and could have, it's like, great, piece of feedback, keep it moving. And in my mind, I was like, no, like I need to go. I need to quit, which is not the best way to develop.
1: To manage a career. To manage a career. Yeah. <laughs>
0: exactly.
1: What's been your experience of talking about your BPD in work?
0: I don't, but I've had opportunities to speak out about this before, and I've always been encouraged to not talk about it. There's something freeing about this. I mean, you know, we met at this conference. You were very vulnerable on this panel, and it sparked something in me, which I think is the power of speaking out, which is like, oh, if he can do it, I can do it too. But I have hesitated to use those actual words of borderline personality disorder in the workplace because my fear is always, one, if they have heard of it, there's such a strong stigma and it's going to shape what they think of me and how they interact with me. And I don't want that to change. And the other thing is, if they haven't heard of it, and then they go and look it up, so many things out there about it are so off. Like, they're just not accurate. Um, But they're also, it's kind of like when you look something up on the internet, like, I don't know, (laughs) I'm trying to think of an example besides like an STD, but you like look it up and it's like always the most extreme case that comes back. It's very similar to like what you read out there about BPD is like, You're reading about like very, very severe cases. That's probably a big misconception um, that I would love for people to understand is there are like varying levels of severity and of like functionality of people living with BPD. And I happen to be actually extremely high functioning and very stable comparatively. And so for someone to go and look this up on the internet and then be like oh my gosh, like, do I now have an employee on my hands that's going to, like, not show up to work or, like, I'm going to have to worry about them being a threat for suicide, like... Yeah, like that sets off like <laughs> panic. Alarm bells. It does set off alarm bells for companies who are like, whoa, like what are we getting ourselves into? And so it it really has been difficult to talk about it, but I do, I think it's important. And now that I own my own company, um, I feel like there is, I'm in a position to speak out and I, I feel like I have a responsibility to do so.
1: And particularly the domain in which you work. Yes. Of inclusion.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think particularly as a leader in this type of space, it's so important to tell your diversity story and to lead with that same vulnerability that you are encouraging others to do.
1: Kelly has worked hard to build tools to manage her BPD. The reality of living with a persistent condition like this is that it's never gone. It's never cured. Her story about texting a former boyfriend a hundred times is something you might see as like a stereotype played out in a movie. The insecure, angry, and spurned lover unable to let go. And even though dumping someone by text is, to use Kelly's words, a dick move, receiving a hundred texts is a disproportionate response. That's BPD in a nutshell. But what's important in this story is the work that Kelly's put in to learn how to recover quickly. When the monster of rejection and abandonment rid its head, the fight-or-flight reaction kicked in, and out went the text messages. But Kelly knew she could get back on an even keel. She called a friend, a friend who's taken time to learn how to support her when she's triggered. She ran a bath, and she got back to normal pretty quickly. There's two great points that Kelly made that I think need emphasis. The first is the question... How can I help you when your illness flares up? That's a question every friend, family member, or colleague should have in their back pocket. Kelly's second point is about the information you'll find online about mental illnesses. Doing a little online research to learn more about a condition is a good place to start to support someone with a mental illness. But as Kelly reminds us, clinical websites and news reports often paint the most extreme version of an illness. These illnesses show up in different ways for different people with different severity. So after you've done some basic research, going and asking somebody the question like, so how does BPD show up for you? is a great way to understand the individual experience of your friend, your colleague, or your family member. Kelly's in a really interesting position. She's the CEO of a company in the diversity and inclusion space, a company that aims to help businesses harness the power of difference. So I was curious, as CEO, what's Kelly doing to harness the power of difference, the neurodiversity of her team? So let's talk about your company and moving forward, what are some things that that you might do to create space for these kind of conversations?
0: Probably start with the one thing that our philosophy, just our general company philosophy is centered around in all aspects of the work, which is leading with listening, asking your employee, like if an employee discloses to you, asking them how they want to be supported. Like, what resources do you need? What tools do you need? I shared this briefly with you, but I had a pretty scarring incident early on in my career where I kind of disclosed my mental illness in a moment of calm. Like, it wasn't during any kind of active crisis. You know, I had gone through this breakup, and, and the person was my coworker, and I was in kind of like a very depressive state, and it became noticeable at work there were assumptions made about what support I needed. And no one came and asked me. It was kind of like thrust upon me of like, we want you to take paid leave. Like, we think you need to check yourself into the hospital. Um, And it felt a bit like being bombarded, one. But two, this is something I've been working with a therapist. Like, I have a therapist. I work on this ongoing basis. It feels very invasive (laughs) to have you come in and tell me what I need rather than asking me, look, we know this is something that you've disclosed. How can we best support you? And so I think that's like super key for any employer. The other piece I would say is asking how it manif- this illness manifests for your employee. So you want to be able to be a good ally and support. Are there signs that I should be aware of? Like, When you may not be able to articulate that you're in a moment of crisis, you are, you know, and I think that's like a really big one. Because whether it's depression or bipolar or BPD, it can be really hard in the moment to articulate what's going on.
1: Or even to know that it's going on.
0: Right. Yes. Yeah. Was on a trip recently with friends, good friends who know me well. I was going through a, a bit of a depressive episode and in the moment I couldn't say it. I didn't know how to articulate it and I finally like had a conversation with a friend at the very end of the trip. She was like, "Yeah, I just like assumed you wanted to be left alone. I just thought you were like stressed out." And it was so frustrating because I was like I needed that support, but I didn't know how to articulate it and they didn't know I guess for them they didn't know the signs to be looking for.
1: And because when you're in a depressive state often you don't want to burden other people.
0: And then your brain is telling you things so like the fact that they weren't reaching out and being like how can we help you was reinforcing this idea that no one wants me around. I'm a burden. No one cares. Like they don't even they'd be better off without me. <laughs> so, you know, it it is interesting. I mean, we hear this messaging a lot around depression which is like you ask them like if they're okay or like and i think sometimes there's this like burden on people who are suffering from mental illness to be able to like signal to everyone like i need help or like ask for help like that yeah i think that's where i'm going with that is like the messaging that i do sometimes see around like reach out for help ask for help ask for help and it's like do you think that, you know, when we see people die by suicide, do you think it was because they didn't know what resources were out there to ask for help? Like, they didn't, they couldn't, you know, use Google and like, figure. it's like, they they couldn't in that moment, like, they weren't able to do that. So...
1: They weren't sat there on Google like, suicide? <laughs> um, what is it? Like, uh, stopping hel- hel- helpline? <laughs> no, like, like, right.
0: <laughs> right. So, um, I think it's super important to be conscious of that. And like, If you can create that kind of like awareness around like this is what it means when I need help and this is how I want to be helped, I think that can also just minimize some of the fear. Because I think that fear comes from a lack of understanding and wanting to mitigate risk. But again, like as an organization, you have to create the safety to where an employee feels that they can even trust the company to to be able to go and have that conversation.
1: And I think uh, an addictive sign for me is how the company th- thinks about and treats physical health as well. If people are off work, are they like super vague about what's going on? Like, oh, I'm not feeling well. Or are they like, they feel comfortable talking about, you know, like I have terrible diarrhea or like <laughs> stuff like that, right?
0: I have my period yeah, and I have cramps and I'm going home.
1: <laughs> you know, I've said this to a number of people lately, right? So, you know, 50% of your workforce probably are women. 50% of your workforce have a period every single month. <laughs> yes. And yet, certainly a mixed company pretty we don't much talk, never about talk about it. I know. It.
0: It's funny cuz my our our team is actually all women um and we laugh about this all the time because you know, we talk about periods a lot and, and someone said, "Oh, well like when we finally have more guys in the office, everything's going to have to change." And I was like, "What? No, like why? You know, we're doing a disservice to them to like perpetuate this idea that we can't talk about it. And um, we're certainly doing a disservice to ourselves because now we can't talk about things that like are natural to like a lot of women. I do. I think that you're right. It does. That is a great indicator. And I get so sick of hearing this, but it is true, which is like, It really does start at the top and how leadership models that behavior. And it's something that is easier said than done. And I am now, you know, as the CEO of a growing company, I'm having to start to like put money where my mouth is and practice what I preach. And I realize the challenge, which is like as a leader, you want to be seen as like this strong, competent person that people can have faith in and follow and that doesn't always feel aligned with being like, hey, team, I'm feeling very depressed and I need to take a mental health day and I need to take care of myself. That can feel like taking a risk. It's like, oh, are they not going to feel as confident in me? Are they worried that I'm just going to like have a breakdown and like the company's going to fall to shit? But what I've seen in doing that is that I've had other people on my team be like, you know what, like, I'm actually having a really rough day, I think that for me, it would be helpful to take the day and just start again fresh tomorrow. And I'm so glad that they feel that they can do that and come to me and say that. And our team is pretty lean right now. But I'm so glad that we're like growing a culture around that kind of vulnerability.
1: Because what you do as a leader, as you say, culture trickles down. People naturally model what you do, not because you command it, but because we live in a society of power structures and your position as CEO carries implied power. And so that's what people, they model and, and good on you for being willing to model that kind of behavior. What I've seen where I've spoken out in panels like the one I did this morning, people find a lot of power in having people tell their stories because I think we live in a time where I don't know we're as authentic as we need to be with one another. Like we craft these carefully curated veneers, right? This isn't we know part this. of
0: my brand. Yeah, right?
1: <laughs> I think that makes it very hard to punch through that. But I also think it really helps people connect because suddenly they feel maybe a little more alike. Yeah, maybe I could be myself.
0: Yeah. And I can attest to that as a person in the audience, I mean, when you shared that, the room just shift the energy shifted, right? In a way that was really positive. If someone like you is on the stage sharing something like that, I guarantee you there's someone in the audience who's going through something similar and like you have changed their trajectory and the whole way that they view that because someone has now used their position of power, like in their voice, their platform to say like, this is who I am and there's nothing there's no shame behind that, right? Like that's, it's okay. And that kind of passes on to that person.
1: So I've got a couple more questions for you. What would you want the world to know, workplaces to know about BPD?
0: That it's not something to be scared of. I've always felt a great sense of, um, you know, that stigma is is really there. And it's painful. like It's really painful. I remember when I had this you know, instance where I was let go um, and my company had kind of tried to intervene and didn't ask me kind of what support I needed. My coworkers were told not to talk to me. I remember because I had gotten let go and I had been part of such a tight-knit team and no one reached out after. There was like this silence for two weeks or so after. And finally, a friend of mine reached out and he said, you know i i just wanted to check in on you and i hope that you're okay and i wanted you to know that the only reason that i haven't reached out and that uh, and then when i said nobody else had either he was like we were told not to reach out to you um and that i felt was the company it was coming from a place of from what we know about BPD like this person could be unstable and we want to protect our employees uh, but i don't know that they knew how hurtful that was um, and also just how inaccurate like I was like what did they think I was going to do to you all (laughs) because
1: everyone everyone is different everyone's experience of these things is different yeah
0: I was like I'm 5 foot (laughs) 2 like 100 pounds like what am I yeah I lied about my weight I'm 120 (laughs) Um, but actually the best thing that I could say from an advice perspective is like read literature that is written by people with BPD about their own experience not to say that there is one experience but like i think that there is a lot more insight because BPD on its surface looks very unpredictable to someone who doesn't understand it if you understand BPD it's actually very predictable it's it's super predictable there are like very clear triggers Right. Very clear triggers and very clear reactions and also very clear ways to help someone come down and be back in a place where they can make good decisions and super clear structures that you can put into place to support someone. I believe that, yes, like if you're doing something that's harmful to your coworkers, like that needs to be addressed. And as someone with BPD, I've learned this, which is like I... May have an illness, but I still have to take responsibility for things that I do. And that can be hard, especially when it feels like it's so out of your control.
1: Can be healing too, right?
0: It can be very healing. I think the biggest thing that I wish people knew is like, I'm not a bad person. There may be times when I do something that feels hurtful or doesn't make sense. But it really is – it's me trying to protect myself. It's me responding to a trauma that, like, you may not be able to see. It's, like, standing right behind you that I'm, like – yeah, the way I could best visualize it is, like, you're standing in front of me and you don't see that there's this giant monster that's standing behind you that I'm reacting to. And I'm not reacting necessarily to you. I'm reacting to this, like, this monstrosity behind you that's terrifying and is, like – kicking up all of these like primal reactions that are saying you need to protect yourself. And so I think there is this feeling of like for some people, particularly when BPD is very severe, their actions can feel very manipulative and like toxic. And I think it is important to it's actually even more so important with people with BPD to have strong boundaries and to hold people accountable for their behaviors while also saying, I recognize that this is an illness, and I I support you, and I love you, and how can we help you make better decisions?
1: So you've had a long journey with anorexia, self-harm, depression, BPD. So I'm going to give you the ability to go back to a point in time on that journey, and whisper something
0: in your ear. Oh man, I'm going to cry. (laughs) Some stuff that I've been working on with my therapist that I think has been really helpful is kind of like talking to that kid and saying, like, there's nothing wrong with you. You're not broken. Other people's actions are not a reflection of whether you matter or not. And if I could like boil that down to one sentence, it's like you are lovable.
1: I honestly think for everybody, you know, tell their their younger self that, you know, whether it's bipolar, depression or you have normal mental health, we all need to be reminded of that sometimes. Yeah. Anything else you want to say before we wrap this up?
0: It's very glad that we kind of our paths crossed and we could have this conversation. I mean, I have to say this is actually the first time I've spoken kind of in a public forum about my BPD. And I'm very glad I did. I think it's an important conversation to have. And so I just want to say thank you for creating a platform where we can have these kinds of honest conversations.
1: Thank you. So that's Kelly's story, a journey through self-harm, depression, all rooted in BPD, which she manages through wise mind practices, supportive friends, and sometimes a well-timed bath. So what have we learned here from Kelly about creating a work environment where people can talk more freely about their mental health? One thing is that it starts at the top. If you're a leader, you need to make space to talk about mental health. That could mean sharing your own experiences if you have them. It could mean inviting a speaker to come talk about mental health or mental illness. It should certainly include emphasizing that people should take care of their mental health. But of course, if you do that, it has to be real. Don't undo your good work in saying it by illness-shaming someone who takes time off work. If you're a colleague of someone with a mental or physical illness, simply show curiosity, do a little research, and... Ask how you can help. And if you're someone who's managing a mental illness, be sure to think about what you need to make work better for you and be prepared to ask for it when the opportunity arises. I learned a lot from Kelly about borderline personality disorder. I'm using this conversation as a reminder that next time someone appears to be, in my view, vastly overreacting to something that I've said or something that I've done, I'll try to remember that they might be reacting to a monster I can't see. Remember. Kelly and I are two people talking about our personal experiences living with and managing a mental illness. If you have any concerns about your mental health, please consult with a mental health care provider. If you're managing a mental illness and something you've heard inspires you to make a change to your treatment plan, before you do, please consult with your care provider. If you like what you've heard in today's episode of Silent Superheroes, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to get notifications of new episodes as they're released, you can sign up for our newsletter at silentsuperheroes.com or you can like the Silent Superheroes page on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Silent Superheroes. Take your mental health seriously. If you need to speak to someone, you can call 1 800 273 8255 or text crisistextline.org at seven four one seven four one. Both provide 24-7 confidential counseling to people in the United States. Worldwide, visit iasp.info slash resources slash crisis underscore centers slash. To help others find the Silent Superheroes podcast, Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting service.